Today we celebrate one of the great feasts of the church here, the Feast of the Epiphany. And Epiphany simply is a Greek word meaning manifestation, showing us something we couldn't see before, making it manifest. Something was hidden that becomes manifest. We can see the Epiphany. Now, originally, the Feast of the Epiphany was about God revealing himself to his chosen people, Israel, in a very special way, revealing Jesus to his chosen people. And that's at his baptism. Remember, it said the Jews had gathered around for baptism, and the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus made manifest as the Messiah to Israel. Now, we celebrate the Feast of the Lord's Baptism. We simply do it a week later because we on the Epiphany in the West celebrate the coming of the Magi. Now, why is this so especially loved in the West is look at what happens. Remember, our father Abraham, for the Jews, was called from the East, and he was called, God says, come with me to a land I will show you without any specific direction. Just come with, I will show you where you go. This is what exactly what happens to the nations in this passage. You know, he said to Abraham, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land I will show you. And here the, the wise men come from the land they had and head west, and they have no idea where they're going. They have to act, ask directions until they come with the star to the place where the child is. His epiphany to his people and to the nations. We celebrate his revelation, his manifestation to the world today. Now, our focus today, let's focus on two questions. How does God manifest himself then and now? How does he actually do that? Not just back at the time of the Magi, but but now in our time. And second, what role do we play in that? Do we have a role that we play in God's manifestation, making himself known to the world? Let's look at the first question. How does God manifest himself? One thing that's should strike you with this story is where do they come from in the sense of who told them to go? We're given no indication somehow they knew enough to come towards Jerusalem. Not enough to know that the child was born in Bethlehem, but enough to come to Jerusalem and ask the question, where's the newborn king of the Jews? How in the world did they know that? Scripture is careful not to tell us because there's a deeper truth here. God was somehow at work elsewhere. His work has never been limited to Israel. He was at work somewhere else. Also, this reminds us of of a very important truth Jesus tells us. He says that conversion is always the work of God. He says no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. So they were somehow drawn by God in a way we never expected, cannot explain to this day, somehow God touched them and brought them to this place. I think for a lot of us, there's a vital lesson in this. First of all, we often give up on those who a long time have been away from the Lord. We think they're too far from the Lord. They just won't be open to the message. And actually, we'd be surprised at how God might very mysteriously have been working in their lives. It's amazing. God often, you know, plants a seed, has planted a seed long ago that we are the ones who harvest. It happens again and again in the Christian life. So we think someone's far from God already. God is in where they love him. They're working on that person. And they're waiting for the time. This is the time for the harvest. Similarly, many of us tend to be discouraged. We try to share the word with people. They're not receptive. We're wasting our time. We're talking to the walls. 
And a lot of those people years from now, the seed by God's grace that we planted will be harvested in their lives by someone else. Jesus actually talks about this in Mark 4. He says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He doesn't know how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. So it's all God's work. We can't explain it, especially in the the ancient world. How does it happen? We plant a seed, and months later, it comes up. How does that happen? It's God. That's why Paul teaches us. He said, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So a lesson we have here is that God uses us as instruments of grace, but true conversion from start to finish is always a miracle. It is the direct action of God. It's not our persuasive powers. It's nothing short of the actual hand of God touching someone. From first to last, the work of God. Another lesson in today's gospel is notice that they didn't stop. First of all, they, didn't, they weren't satisfied to have this information back home. And they weren't satisfied to stop in Jerusalem. They stopped there. They didn't stay there. They were not satisfied. Their journey did not end until they directly, personally encountered Jesus Christ. Nothing else was good enough. So again, they didn't stay home and say, isn't this a wonderful revelation to us? When Jerusalem, they didn't talk about exegetics or theology. The temptation must have been great, I know. They moved on to Bethlehem to where the star until they encountered Jesus Christ themselves in person. A second question, then, is what role do we play? What role do we play? Well, our role is to, as Christians is to lead people to the place where Jesus is. The title of our sermon is The Place Where Jesus Is. We lead people like the star did in the past. We lead people to the place where they will encounter Jesus Christ, personally encounter the Lord Jesus. Now, we know Jesus can be encountered with us because he's still with us today. That's why we call him Emmanuel. And we have Jesus' own promise to his apostles, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus has told us himself, he didn't leave us orphans. He is still with us now. We'll see the fullness of his power at the last day. But he has not abandoned us. He's with us now. He is there to be met directly and personally. So where do people go to find that? Where do people go to actually encounter Jesus? Not talk about him, to actually encounter Jesus. Paul tells us it's the church. He says, speaking of of the Father, he says, the Father put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you're looking for Jesus, where does the star stop? It starts, it stops at his body, the church. The fullness, as Paul describes it, of him who fills all in all. And notice Paul is not talking about a theoretical construct, a perfect church, a platonic church. The same Paul, in writing two of the most embarrassing letters in the New Testament, the Corinthians, this was hardly the ideal church. These were incredibly human people. But how does he begin the first letter to the Corinthians? He says, to the church of God that is at Corinth. It was still the church of God. It was still the place where people would encounter Jesus despite all of its failings. So what 
should people find when they come to the church, Christ's body? The fullness of him who's all in all. What should they actually find? Today's story of the Magi gives us some vital information. The gifts they bring tell us something of what, what anyone should find when they finally find the place where Jesus is. So what are the gifts? We know the famous gold. Gold was the sign of what you pay tribute in. It's acknowledging the rule of a king. So they brought tribute to a king, gold. They brought frankincense. This was for worship. They came for the, to worship the Son of God. And again, the symbolism of incense was especially the idea that we have the, God is in the heavens and we are here stuck on the earth. How can we get from here to there? And incense is that wonderful, it represents prayer, the way that we connect heaven and earth through our prayer. We actually go to the places we could not otherwise go. That's what we say in Psalm 114, let my prayer rise like incense. So incense was brought for the Son of God. And myrrh, which is a burial spice, was for the one who actually would die for us. Again, we said the, on Christmas that why would God become incarnate? He certainly didn't need to become incarnate to give us a message. He'd done that well through the prophets, the angel of God, through dreams and visions. Because there's one thing God cannot do. Only one thing. The very essence of God, his name is I am. God cannot die. He is life itself. He is incapable of death. Yet God did have to die for us, and that's why Jesus became a human being for that purpose. So he's not just God, but the God who died, myrrh, the one who died for us. So what do these things tell us about what people should find when they come to find Jesus in the church? First, let's look at gold. We said gold was tribute to a king. What they should find is the kingdom of heaven breaking into earth. Not complete with all our weaknesses, but nonetheless, they should see the kingdom of God breaking into earth. We actually pray for this every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. The Father's always taught us this. When we say, thy kingdom come, we're not speaking anyway just about the second coming of Jesus, the Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. We're talking about let Jesus come and completely enter every corner of my life, every dark space. Let his kingdom, his reign, be complete in my life and our life together as Christians in church. That's what the prayer is. Thy kingdom come. Every space being filled with God. Because so many of us, you know where the word pagan comes from. You might not be aware of it. A lot of the word pagas is countryside. Originally, the church was an urban phenomenon. It was easier to reach people in cities. And so the last places that were, came to the faith were the, were the countrysides. And so even long after there were vibrant Christian churches in cities, there would be people who lived in the countrysides who were away from the Lord. In our lives, don't we often have country spaces like that? Don't we have corners and things where the gospel hasn't crept in? This is the place where we're praying for God's kingdom to come. And what that looks like is transformed lives. First of all, our own lives. This is the miracle of God, transformed lives. My favorite verse in the Bible, that's to say a lot for me. It's my favorite verse. And like Father Rudy, every time he preaches, talks about the Cubs. You'll always hear this verse somewhere, so get used to it. It's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. 
That's how we know God is here. We see lives that are... This is a, trans, a sanctuary of transformation. All of us have our witnesses of how our lives have been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Not reading about him, encountering him, encountering the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this is amazingly in history. We look at the, the early martyrs. We have many accounts of people actually becoming Christians during martyrs, martyrdom. They were so impressed at what they saw. They wanted what the martyrs had. They seemed to be the ultimate losers losing their lives. But these people clearly had a peace beyond understanding. It's what they, they, they saw this is what my whole life is looking towards. That would be a witness to them. Edith Stein was a great philosopher of the 20th century, later canonized as a saint of the Roman Catholic Church. How did she convert from Judaism? What really persuaded her was she later on read the autobiography. What started her on the journey? She was in a group of young friends, and there was one young couple that was the perfect example of a couple in love, young love. And the husband tragically died unexpectedly. He died. And they really loved him. And they grieved like people always do who really love someone. But as Paul tells us, they did, not, they did not grieve like those who have no hope. It was the different type of grief they saw here that, that changed her. She wanted that. There was a different type of grief. Somehow, life was different from them, and what they had, she wanted. Transformed lives. But that's not enough. We're talking about lives that transform other people's lives. I love this. Paul uses the example. He says, being a follower of Jesus, remember the Romans had these great triumphal parades, these victory processions, where they have the chariots and people flowing flowers and, and a crown being held over the victor's head in a great military victory. That's what Paul compares the church to in the world. And he was talking in a world where the church was persecuted. He says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Not only do we have transformed lives, but we have lives that are transforming lives all around us. This is, this is the work of God. You know, we often forget when the Lord says to Peter, you're a rock, upon this rock I will build my church. And he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We have the image wrong. Gates of hell shall not prevail. Gates don't attack. It's not a defensive image. The idea is we're on, we're on the attack. We're in Christ's triumphal. We're, we're, we're taking everything. Christ is claiming his kingdom, and we're with him in that triumphal procession. We're not leaving anyone behind. We're claiming everyone for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his kingdom. So what does Stephen ask in his famous prayer? Uh, remember at the end of his martyrdom, he says, you know, Father, do not hold this against them. It says right after the next verse that Saul was sitting there keeping the garments. The church had always, has always held that Saul's conversion was the fruit of that prayer. You see, them, see them wasn't enough to get, it wasn't enough for him to get the martyr's crown. He wanted the troops. He wanted to take prisoners. He wasn't content to live, leave Saul or anyone there. He wanted them in the train with Jesus. He saw, it allows us to see every enemy as a potential brother and sister. This is why we can love our enemies. We see every last one of them as a brother or sister. Why? Again, the mysterious working of God. We don't know what God has already done in their hearts. What about frankincense? The second, gold. Gold is the kingdom. Frankincense is they should find the church a house of prayer. Remember, Jesus quoted this line from Isaiah, 
He says, God's house is a house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, a prophecy of Isaiah. And the church is God's house. A house of prayer for all people. What does that mean? It means that prayer, it means that prayer means the lifting of the minds and hearts to God. That's actually the definition of prayer. A lot of us think prayer is just the times when we're saying things to God. No. Prayer is any time we lift our minds and hearts to God. It's living with God at the core of our life, not at the periphery. That's what prayer is. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. How is that possible? Because we live lives in the presence of God at the core of our lives. The church is about people who are plugged into the power of God. Remember, it says in James' epistle, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It's a priceless gift of God. It means that no matter who we are, God shares his own power with us. It's his promise. We often feel so helpless, right? We have no, what can I do? Look at the world around me. Look at the people around me. I so want to do something, but I honestly can't. Let's say I'm on a sickbed. I'm dying. What can I possibly do? God has always said that our prayers have real power. He gives that power to us, so there's always something we can do. Now, why do we sometimes hesitate to believe that gift? Is because we have so many unanswered prayers, right? So many of us, we believe that how many times we have the experience, we, ha- we hear that our prayers are answered, but we've prayed really hard, and our prayer doesn't seem to have been answered. What's the answer? That God promises to answer prayer, but we all know situations of loved ones who still die, terrible things that still happen. God always answers the prayer we should have prayed. That's really important. God always says yes to prayer, Always. But he, he answers of a loving father. He says, what father gives a scorpion to his son instead of a, instead of a loaf of bread? He always gives us what we should have asked for. This is powerful. Then we can know, no matter what, that somehow once I place it before God, it might look like nothing has happened, but something has profoundly changed. God has given his word that this will, in fact, be the prayer we should have answered. It will be answered. But more important than that is we don't pray alone. You know, Peter describes us as a royal priesthood. And one of, the, one of the beautiful things we recovered, we are a church of the Reformation that we recovered at the time of the Reformation, was the priesthood of all believers. You know, at the Middle Ages, sadly, it had come in that we had sort of professional religious people who prayed for the rest of us. And the idea was that certainly we have special gifts and ministries in the church, but every last Christian is a priest before God. Every one of us goes with Jesus into the inner sanctuary. Every last one of us. And this is, this is so powerful. Think of this, that, uh, for, exa- uh, for example, in the early church, this is the first thing a new Christian did as a sign of their faith. You see, before baptism, people in the early church would actually stay at the service through the lessons to, and through the, through the sermon, but then they would leave because this is the part where only God's people, fully in Christ and baptism, participate. The very first thing was the prayers of the people. Why? Everyone can pray. But when a Christian prays, It's joining his or her prayer to Jesus himself. We pray Jesus' prayer. That's what it means to be priest of all believers. Our prayers are joined to the prayers of Jesus, and God the Father has never said no to Jesus. This is why it's so important to us that we actually say at baptisms, next week we'll have baptisms, and we say we have an invitation to newly baptize, our welcome. We say we receive you into the household of God 
confess the faith of Christ crucified, proclaim his resurrection, and share with us in his eternal priesthood. We don't pray like just anyone. We pray with Jesus. And there's something else, too, about our prayers. Our prayers are for the world. Priests don't pray for themselves. The idea of priesthood is we come. When Jesus is called our great high priest in Hebrews, when he's coming into the sanctuary, he's not saying what he needs for the day. He needs nothing. He's God. He's bringing our needs before God. To be a priest before Christ is to join him in bringing the cares of the world before God. People often ask, how can I meet Jesus? Easy. Start praying for others and you'll see Jesus praying next to you. What about myrrh? We've talked about gold is the kingdom of God breaking into the world. We've talked about frankincense being a house of prayer. Myrrh is the empty tomb which is evidence of new life out of death. Because it's beyond improvement or getting better or virtue. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Nothing less than that is enough. Everything else is imitating virtue, but it's not the real thing. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. Jesus described it this way. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Love one another. Look at Jesus' love. It's love that holds nothing back. Love that expects absolutely nothing in return. It's completely non-transactional. In all of our lives, no matter how hard we try, we're, in our human nature, we're transactional. Our best friends, our family, they laugh at our jokes, we laugh at theirs. You know, we do nice things for them, they do nice things for us. We might give them a little slack, but ultimately, it comes, they deliver the goods. We're looking for what's in me. I like to compare it to, have you ever seen somebody looking into a shop window? And you say, what's so fascinating? And you come up and realize they're not looking through the window, they're actually looking at the reflection and change, you know, fixing their tie. Well, until we know Jesus' love, that's what everyone else in the world is to us. We're just looking for our own reflection in other people. What do they bring to me? How do they improve my life? They're simply tools for me. It's only when we have Jesus we can see through the window and actually see other people and love them what Christ loves them. Jesus put it this way about being non-transactional. He said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get the same amount back. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you'll truly be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's the sign of self-giving love kind to the ungrateful and the evil because there's no expectation. He sees through the window and he'll give us eyes to see through that same window and to love what he loves. Our conclusion then today is we say that today we celebrate Christ's manifestation to the nations. It wasn't just Abraham. He called the whole world through Abraham. He calls people to a place he brings them and the place he brings them is the Lord Jesus Christ, direct contact with Jesus. Where do people find that today? They meet Jesus in his body, the church. And what should they find in the church? They should find the goal. They should find the kingdom of God in the form of transformed lives and lives that are transforming the lives of others. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. They should see frankincense, a house of prayer, 
Lives lived where God is the core, not an, an add-on. God is the cake, not the frosting. Myrrh, life coming out of death, a love that truly isn't transactional, that holds nothing back, that expects nothing in return, that leaves it to God. Let us pray then today that Jesus would truly manifest himself in his church, starting right here and now. And this is the place where people would come in to direct contact Jesus, not just talk about Jesus, actually meet him. Amen.